0: dot com slash lawless terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed
1: it's been an eventful 2019 for both united states national teams the men started their rebuild under new coach greg Burhalter and ultimately fell short of gold cup glory meanwhile jill ellis steered the women to a resounding defense of their world cup title in france before dropping the mic and riding off into the sunset the state of the union podcast was there every step of the way but plenty happened across the U.S. soccer landscape before a ball was kicked in June. In fact, our journey across 2019 starts all the way back on January 8th, when I recorded a State of the Union following a big-money transfer that sent shockwaves both in Europe and the United States. Christian Pulisic agreed to a transfer from Dortmund to Chelsea for $73.1 million. This is a seminal moment in American soccer history because... This isn't just a big transfer fee, quote, for an American. No, this is a big transfer fee for a human. How big? Well, it's the 26th most expensive transfer fee in the history of the game, one of the top 10 most expensive transfers in EPL history, and it's also over three times the previous record transfer fee ever paid for an American of $22 million. Now, Pulisic is undeniably one of the great young talents in the world. That he's American makes him even more valuable, and that's reflected in the fee. Because all modern soccer brands, but especially the global super clubs, are locked in a race for global relevancy and are looking to capture hearts and minds of the world. They all want and they need to mine, or in many cases continue to mine, the fertile U.S. market. Having a Christian Pulisic on your team certainly helps. So is he worth it? Well, just like your house, he's worth whatever someone's willing to pay. But this is a calculated buy from Chelsea of a valuable asset and the complete package. And one that, if he stars in the world's most popular league, will only increase in value. So far, Pulisic's rise to stardom has followed a smooth, calculated, and smart path. This next step may provide the global American superstar an elixir that so many crave. Or it may provide yet another cautionary tale of too much too soon, unfulfilled potential, and simply not living up to the hype or the price tag. But no matter how this ends, this is a good thing for Pulisic and for American soccer. While Christian Pulisic's club future might have been settled earlier in the year, there were still questions about the direction his national team was headed. The Greg Berhalter era kicked off in late January with a win against Panama, giving us a glimpse of what the new leader envisioned for his team. The U.S. men's national team doesn't deserve your unwavering support, attention, or respect. That's something that's earned and it was lost in the team's epic failure to qualify for the 2018 World Cup. Now it's up to new head coach Greg Berhalter and this new generation of players to earn back that support, attention, and respect. The Berhalter era kicked off on Sunday as the U.S. easily and expectedly beat Panama 3-0. Yes, it was a soft launch of sorts featuring a mostly domestic-based U.S. roster against a very weak Panama and played in a near-empty stadium. There will be much bigger challenges to come for Burhalter and company but it was our first chance to see what this team may look like under Berhalter. Now, in my expert opinion, winning is better than losing. You can hashtag that. So yes, the win is important, but how this team won is even more important. I enjoyed watching this team's commitment to building out of the back in possession, the switching from a back three to a back four with and without the ball, the new young faces like Nick Lima and Georgi Mihaljevic giving Berhalter something to think about, and even old General Bradley showing up and bossing the midfield like it was 2009. It's a small sample size, and so the skepticism, cynicism, and criticism of this team remains. But Berhalter's done a pretty good job of publicly articulating what he wants this team to do. And at least against Panama, it looked like his players understood what he wants them to do. Agree or disagree, at least so far, he's practicing what he preached. Burhalter and this team still have a long way to go to earn back that support, attention, and respect but it can only happen one game at a time. At least against Panama, this U.S. team turned some heads. And that's a start. As March rolled around, a pair of friendlies gave Berhalter the chance to call in a full complement of players, including those players based in Europe. Did those matches create more questions that they answered? Well, here's what I had to say on March 26th. This week, the Greg Berholter era U.S. men's national team fired up again. And for the first time, the European-based players were integrated into the team. Guys like Christian Pulisic, Weston McKinney, Tyler Adams, John Brooks, and DeAndre Yedlin. So far, Berhalter has been refreshingly clear and public about his style and his system. Things like a commitment to playing out of the back, hybrid positions, shifting, attacking, and defensive formations, and the injection of young talent. Even if you don't agree with it, you still have to respect that Berhalter has articulated what he wants and he's trying to implement it. And I'd rather have a flawed plan than no plan at all. But now comes the interesting part. What if we find that Berhalter's system works better with lesser known, lower profile or perceived inferior talent? For example, what if someone like Nick Lima from the San Jose Earthquakes, certainly not a household name, is better at playing right back for the U.S. men's national team in a Berhalter system than, say, a Tyler Adams or a DeAndre Yedlin? who are both playing at the Bundesliga and EPL levels, respectively. As we know, a national team is not the best players. It's the best collection of players. Now it's easy to say that it doesn't matter who you are, where you play, how much money you make, or how popular you are. But for a U.S. men's national team coach in 2019, it would take some courage to play lesser known domestic talent over popular talent playing overseas. Public perception is that players playing abroad are better, and it's often the reality. But would you consider a U.S. men's national team coach in 2019 to be derelict in their duties if they determined that the team was better without starting players, say, like a Pulisic or an Adams or a McKinney or a Brooks or a Yedlin. Many feel that the U.S. doesn't have that luxury to turn away recognized talent. But in order to have a true system, you have to be willing to do just that. As spring turned to summer, all eyes turned towards France, where the United States women's national team opened their World Cup defense with authority. Their celebrations in the 13-0 drubbing against Thailand instantly painted the Americans as the tournament's bullies. As I said on June 12th from the Trocadero in Paris. The U.S. women's national team beat Thailand 13-0. They ran up the score and celebrated every goal like it was the game winner. Now, this has stoked debate and brought criticism and condemnation from home and abroad with many questioning the team's class, sportsmanship, and motivation. But Alexa, you say, there are kids watching. Yeah, I hope they're watching. And I hope they learn that at the highest level, you don't apologize for being great. Not everybody gets a trophy. And we keep score for a reason. Now, the US may have lost some fans and sealed their fate as villains of this World Cup. So be it. It's not the U.S. Women's National Team's problem that Thailand couldn't compete. It's not the U.S. Women's National Team's responsibility to take their foot off the gas. If you have complaints, direct them to FIFA. This is the World Cup. The U.S. is here to win, not to make friends. But the soccer gods can be vindictive, and they never forget. That already big target on the U.S. team just got a lot bigger. If the U.S. goes on to fail in this tournament, their behavior against Thailand could come back to haunt them, because. The only thing the world loves to see more than a bully getting punched in the nose is an American bully getting punched in the nose. Back home across the Atlantic, the U.S. men geared up for the Gold Cup on the heels of back-to-back losses. On the eve of their first match of the tournament, I said the Gold Cup would serve as a referendum on the team's progress under Berhalter greetings from paris the u.s men's national team limps into this summer's gold cup on the heels of two ugly and concerning home defeats in a row one nothing to jamaica and three nothing to venezuela the team also continues to carry the stench of the failure to make the 2018 world cup new coach greg berhalter is trying to reshape rejuvenate and resurrect this team but this summer's gold cup will be a referendum on greg berhalter he must prove to a skeptical wary and frustrated american soccer community but he's leading this team in the right direction. But what is the right direction? Burhalter's trying to implement a more challenging and evolved system and style of play based on possession and building out of the back. Relative to the past, it's progressive, audacious, and romantic. It also may be impossible with the talent available. So U.S. soccer fans are faced with an existential crisis. Try to be something new, bold, and unprecedented and risk more regression, mistakes, and failure or try simply to be a better version of ourselves with a more pragmatic, traditional, and safer approach. Greg Berhalter is a romantic. He believes in himself, and he's asking us to trust the process. And I don't want a coach who abandons their principles at the first sign of adversity. But former U.S. soccer president Sunil Galati once famously said, to take the moral high ground is fine unless you're standing on quicksand. Well, this summer in the Gold Cup, we're going to find out if Greg Berhalter is a romantic standing on solid ground or sinking in quicksand. By early July, both the U.S. women and men booked spots in the finals of their respected summer tournaments. Familiar territory, sure, but the teams were on different ends of the spectrum when it came to public perception. I broke it all down on July 5th. Greetings from Paris. The U.S. women's national team and the U.S. men's national team have been following separate but parallel tournament paths for the last few weeks. But Sunday, they find themselves both back in familiar territory. The women in the World Cup final, the men in the Gold Cup final. The U.S. women, World Cup defending champions, the U.S. men, Gold Cup defending champions. But while both U.S. national teams have an opportunity to win consecutive cups, current image, perception, and relevance of the two teams could not be any more different. The U.S. women stroll into the World Cup final at an all-time high in popularity as the number one team in the world and as rock stars showered with unwavering support from a proud nation. The U.S. men, well, not so much. They head in the Gold Cup final still trying to rid themselves of the stain of the historic failure to qualify for the 2018 World Cup at an all time low in terms of public confidence and belief and in the midst of a rebuild under a new coach and technical director. Now, I know that winning a regional title is not the same as winning a world title, but both teams are under the same expectations to get to their respective World Cup and Gold Cup finals and win. Anything less historically has been considered a failure. So Sunday could be a special and unique day in U.S. soccer, a day we see both our U.S. national teams raising a cup, maybe the end of a coronation and the start of a resurrection. If it happens, we may see why we continue to believe in one team and why there may be reason to at least start to believe in the other. The U.S. men didn't hold up their end of the bargain against Mexico in the Gold Cup final, but the U.S. women got the job done and retained their crown of world champion, On July 7th, I looked at the impact of the U.S. Women's National Team's monumental achievement. Greetings from Paris. The World Cup is over and America wins again. Huge TV audiences tuned in to watch, but World Cups are often more about celebrating the country and flying the flag than the sport itself. You get a lot of people coming into the soccer tent for the first time because it's a cultural event, but not necessarily because they're fans of the sport. But the show ends and the circus leaves town and the difficult daily grind of growing the game continues. Men and women, from grassroots to pro, toiling in the trenches far from the bright lights of the World Cup. To quote the great Bonnie Raitt, I can't make you love me if you don't. Well, I can't make you love soccer if you don't, men's or women's. A World Cup is not a panacea, but it can be a gateway, an introduction to some who hopefully may stick around and want to add soccer to their daily diet. Now that this World Cup is over, there will be many who return to their soccerless lives. But there will also be many who, because of this World Cup, have discovered a love for soccer that will last a lifetime. A lot of this is because of this incredible US team. They demand that you pay attention. They live up to the hype, and they entertain us on and off the field. Bonnie Raitt also said, let's give them something to talk about. And thankfully, this summer, this US team, one of the greatest teams in sports history, gave us plenty to talk about including another World Cup title. Goodbye from Paris. While the U.S. women cruised along in their victory tour, their male counterparts prepared for Nations League play. Following another loss to El Tri, this time in a September friendly, it seemed that Burhalter lacked the players to successfully execute his system. I delved into the issue on September 10th. U.S. men's national team coach Greg Berhalter is a romantic. He is a true believer in his system and philosophy of playing out of the back and through high pressure. It's often a high-risk, high-reward proposition. It is also a departure from U.S. tradition, and to many, it represents a more progressive and evolved approach to playing the game. But Greg Berhalter is trying to paint the Sistine Chapel with crayons. It's apparent that, at least for now, he doesn't have the players to successfully play this style against teams that are better than the U.S. Players are often being asked to do things and being put in situations that require them to act in a counterintuitive way to what they've been taught or are accustomed to. That's a problem in a national team environment where you don't have the daily opportunity to train and grow or the weekly opportunity to implement and assess. So, do you make the players adjust to the system or the system adjust to the players? Right now, Berhalter's asking the players to adjust to the system and many are struggling to do so. This may be the price of progress. But are we willing to pay it? Qualifying for 2022 starts in less than a year. Becoming a better version of yourself is easier and faster. Becoming something you've never been, well, that's harder and slower. A lot of coaches, when it gets difficult, they lack the courage to adhere to their stated principles. In that sense, I admire and respect Greg Berhalter's unwavering belief in himself and his vision. That's how big, bold, and fundamental change often happens. But if that change is gonna come, eventually Berhalter is gonna need more and just crayons to create his masterpiece. A Nations League loss to Canada in October marked the first time we lost to our neighbors to the north in more than three decades. It was a stunning result, to say the least. The very next morning, I had to record my first ever State of the Union emergency podcast. Here it is from October 16th. Hey there, I guess this is a State of the Union, state of emergency address, if you will. And I know a lot of you want to hear me scream and yell about the U.S. losing to Canada to nothing. Uh, but I can't. The uh, Fact is, I'm not angry, I'm not sad. I guess I'm just apathetic. And let's be honest, when it comes to the U.S., it always comes down to winning or losing. We do not do nuance very well we talk about romance we talk about style we talk about system but fact is when the team wins things are good and when the team loses things are bad the truth is if the u.s qualifies for the world cup and does well nobody really cares how it's done you don't believe me when was the last time we screamed and yelled about style of play lack of diversity talent falling through the cracks or a broken system when it comes to the U.S. women's national team. U.S. coach Greg Berhalter, he promised fundamental change. But right now, I'd settle for simply being a better version of ourselves. Berhalter is like Marty McFly playing an Eddie Van Halen solo in Back to the Future. He's a man at a time doing something we're not quite ready for. The 2-0 loss to Canada was bad. Was it Trinidad-Tobago bad? No. The US could crush Canada at home next month and the angst will probably subside. But this team looks uncomfortable, it looks confused, and most disappointing of all, it looks soft. Yes, there is a price to pay for progress, but if it means losing the essence of what has fueled this team for the last 25 years, then I don't think it's worth it. This was yet another warning shot. The time has come to say goodbye to romance. Greg Berhalter needs to change his tune, because right now, no one wants to hear it. A month later, the home leg of the Nations League tie with Canada loomed. In a letter to the American Outlaws, Berhalter was quoted as saying, only a win would suffice. As a result, I thought the heat was on Berhalter, and it'd be turned up in that rematch. Turns out, I may have mistook Berhalter's pre-match comments as more than what they really were. I explained on November 19th. U.S. men's national team coach Greg Burhalter got a little breathing room as the U.S. crushed Canada 4-1 in Orlando. It was an emphatic response to losing to Canada a few weeks ago for the first time in 34 years. Now ironically, the U.S., who under Burhalter has been attempting to play a more difficult possession-based, patient, and evolved style, went back to the future to beat Canada. Rather than trying to continue to be something they've never been, they showed up as simply a better version of themselves, leaning heavily on traditional American traits like set pieces and counterattacks. Now, last week, I framed this game as a must-win with real consequence to Berhalter and, as such, the biggest game in Greg Berhalter's tenure. I based this, in large part, on Berhalter's public statement saying, quote, only a win would suffice. I said that him going all-in on this game was worthy of admiration, respect, and support. However, it turns out, I was wrong. The United States Soccer Federation informed me that I misinterpreted Berhalter's words and that it wasn't a must-win-or-else type of scenario. Berhalter was merely stating the obvious fact that only a win would enable the team to advance from their Nations League group. So, I apologize. Evidently, it was not worthy of admiration, respect, and support. As a matter of fact, there was no pressure, no importance, and no consequence associated with this result at all as was evidenced before the game by the United States Soccer Federation Sporting Director Ernie Stewart, saying that he's pleased with what he has seen, and an individual result wouldn't change that. So, the U.S. won, but the result doesn't matter. Fine. Let me know when it does. And so, another year closes for the U.S. men's and women's national teams. A World Cup triumph. Gold Cup heartbreak, a new women's head coach replacing the legendary Jill Ellis, a men's coach trying to buy back some goodwill with the fans. A lot can happen in a year. As we look ahead to a new year for both programs, I leave you with these words. You know, I'm incredibly fortunate and privileged to be able to make my living in 2019 America in soccer and without kicking a ball. And yes, I know some of you would rather I didn't. But be that as it may, as we head into the holidays and a new year, I just want to thank all of you for being part of the show. Each week here on the State of the Union pod, we talk about the game from an American perspective. Because the American soccer community is truly amazing. We're passionate, opinionated, educated, emotional, and proud about this unique, strange, and wonderful culture we've created. Yeah, we can be stubborn, irrational, mean, and insecure. But we can also be kind, smart, powerful, and protective. We are a family. And like any family, we have our dysfunction. But we all want soccer to grow and succeed in our country, even if we have different ideas about how to do it. At a necessity, we are citizens of the world's game. Our soccer palette is diverse, with domestic and international colors. No, it's not real life, it's just soccer. But it's our soccer. And it's special and worth celebrating. So, from all of us here at the State of the Union podcast, we wish you a wonderful holiday and a happy, healthy, and successful 2020. Here's to all of you. Here's to the American soccer fan.